Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. And tonight, the Seminoles run headlong into North Carolina here at the Smith Center in Chapel Hill. It is as loud as I have ever heard it here. Mike Patrick along with Dick Vitale, great to have you with us. This may be the best North Carolina team since Dean Smith won the NCAA championship in 1982. Talented, deep, and quick. Well, they really are. I think there are three elements that make them so special. The great size they possess. You're right, Mike. They are so deep, and they are talented. And let me tell you about defense. They are really being sensational with the traps. Look against Seton Hall right now. They fan you, bring you to the sideline. They force the turnover. They strip the offense. Now we see the same area again. They bring you to a trapping area, force the turnover again. And now in the middle of the floor, out of a run and jump, there's the strip. They convert, they go to the other end. I'll tell you one thing, Mike, this is no wine and cheese crowd tonight, baby. Like Sammy Cassell said. This may be Dean Smith year. It looks like Carolina has assembled all the pieces in the puzzle. We'll have the starting lineups in a moment. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. Welcome back, everybody. What is good? I'm Joey Powell. You are tuned into InsideCarolina.com, Inside Carolina's podcast, specifically the Throwback Podcast, Episode Eight. You know what we're about. You know what we do. Our name. And our game is UNC nostalgia, specifically around big-time Carolina games. We want you to feel good. We want you to reminisce with us, uh, jump in the time machine, go back, and let's talk about you know, what was probably a really exciting game, a really exciting time. And most of the ones that we've done, I feel like, have been pretty well-received. I hope that you feel the same way as our listeners and now viewers, since we're doing this on YouTube, too. But uh, do us a favor. Take a second right now. Wherever you are, if you're driving your car, listening to us, and wait till you get to your next, you know, stop and go and pull over and do it. But hey, stop and give us a review, right? Give us a review, give us a rating, let us know. That helps the podcast distribution algorithms bump us up to the top so we get more exposure, which means advertisers like us more, which means they help support us more, which means we can give you guys more content. Um, speaking of advertisers, I would be remiss if I did not give a humongous shout out to our friends over at Johnny T-Shirt, johnnytshirt.com. They support just about everything that Inside Carolina does. They've been huge proponents of this podcast, uh, and we're huge proponents of them. If you need gear, we just saw uh, last week, as, as we're recording this now, we just saw last week they're starting to try to ease athletes back into campus, which makes us think there's going to be a football season. You're going to need gear. Don't show up to your tailgate or your first game with old gear on. Don't be that guy or that girl. Hit johnnytshirt.com. They can get it delivered to you with quickness, uh, and they'll always keep, keep you dressed to the nines and looking good and feeling good. And, again, we want to thank them for all they do for Inside Carolina, insidecarolina.com, and this particular podcast. Ladies and gents, this week we're jumping all the way back to January 27th, 1993. 
Carolina was 16-1. The only loss they'd had so far in this season, and, and you know how that season ended. Uh, it was a national championship, number two for Dean Smith in New Orleans. But Carolina was 16-1. Their only loss that year was the Fab Five in Michigan in December. And they were coming to this game ranked number three, really, really good head-to-toe. Uh, you know, they had six uh, All-Americans. They weren't McDonald's All-Americans at the time. They were parade All-Americans. But six All-Americans. Uh, they had the 21 feet of white between Winstrom, uh, Salvadori, and Montross, which is something that, you know, a lot of uh, recruitniks will remember, including the two guys I'm going to bring on here in a second. Florida State was no slouch either. Florida State had Charlie Ward, who would go on to win the freaking Heisman Trophy and become an amazing NBA player himself. Uh, Rodney Dobard, and this is their starting five. Charlie Ward, Rodney Dobard, Sam Cassell, Bobby Sura, and Doug Edwards. They had five legit NBA guys on that team. So they're coming into to Chapel Hill. They'd only had Charlie Ward for a couple of games at this point uh, and had not lost a game with Charlie Ward in the lineup. You know, he came over after football was over. Florida State is coached by Pat Kennedy. They're 13-5. and five. They're ranked number 19. Had just beaten Duke, which see that for whatever it was. But when they were leading into the broadcast, they talked about that as a big deal. Um, Florida State were going to finish the year 25-10. and 10. Uh, second in the ACC. But again, this is a big deal because they absolutely waxed the Tar Heels for three quarters of the game. And we're going to have fun talking about it. So I want to bring on my two guests today. Uh, you might remember them from other situations and services. And I want to introduce our two panelists today. Uh, the first one is the notorious ROB Rob Harrington, author, Inside Carolina recruiting guru, uh, I see a contributor. You've seen him anywhere. The dude is probably single best at identifying things that you're going to love in a player before he gets to campus. Rob Harrington, how the heck are you? I'm great. Thanks for a, uh, quite a rousing introduction. I'm going to have to record that one and use it for all purposes. I mean, I, I stopped short of the from North Carolina. <laughs> I stopped short of that, but that seems to be popular these days. And along with him, Double M all the way from the West Coast in San Jose, Matt Morgan, also I see recruiting guru extraordinaire. Uh, he's now the long-form oracle and has written some of the more fascinating pieces that have captivated my attention because I, I don't read a lot of stuff. So when this guy posts something, it's instant, uh, it's instant top of the list. And he's done some really good work for Inside Carolina in the long-form phase recently. So I uh, want to give him a big shout-out and bring him in. Matt, how you doing, buddy? I'm awesome, man. I'm excited to hear talking to you guys. Uh, like you said, I'm, I, if, if that sign in Wilmington's accurate, I'm 3,000, I-40 miles or so <laughs> from Chapel Hill. So I don't get to talk that often with, with folks who get Carolina basketball. So I'm pumped to be here, man. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys joining us. I think this is going to be a, a fun discussion, as most of these have been so far. And, you know, I always lead these off and ask the guys uh, who have been on the panel, you got to tell me, what was your memory of the game? before we rewatched and Rob, I'll go to you first. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, uh, I would take one step back from this game and look at that season as a whole, because the 1993 season I thought was the end of an era uh, because it was the bridge. It was the championship team. But then after that, even though a lot of those guys came back in 1994, you had them transitioning to the Stackhouse and Wallace era. And it, so it was for me, the last of the traditional Carolina teams I think a lot of us who grew up with the Tar Heels at that time had heard a lot about these great comebacks. And so about that game specifically, you know, there was the Walter Davis 1974 
and this turned into just one of those epic comebacks like okay now we have one of these we can talk to people about and taught them with in you know, year, later years which is exactly what i've done of course um and it was just a, it was a magical thing to experience without even watching basketball with the granularity that i do now it was just one of those fun you know emotionally connecting types of games it was something that was unforgettable if you saw it live it's funny you say that in going back and prepping for this show uh looking at it there are actually still articles that were written at the time by the new york times and baltimore sun who were out of market publications and they were covering this at the time. So it gives you a little bit of magnitude about the story on how it hit the national landscape. Matt, what was your memory before you rewatched it? Well, it's funny that, that Rob mentions if you watched it, because my confession I'm going to start out with is I, I didn't watch it live. I watched the first half live. This week was the first time that I was able to see the second half. You know, uh, I was, I think, 10 years old at the time. I was in fourth grade at Carborough Elementary School, baby. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it was a nine o'clock Wednesday start. So I watched the first love half. Those. I saw us getting blitzed. Uh, I, um, I hadn't, you know, I, I like to say that Carolina basketball teaches you a lot of lessons, especially Dean Smith basketball. And this was a lesson game for me um, because I went to bed, I put on my AM radio. It's crazy how vividly I remember my AM radio in my room right now. <laughs> um, but I remember listening to it. I, I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning. My parents told me about uh, the comeback and how Carolina won. I thought they were messing with me. But, you know, you hear about, Dean Smith and all these glowing things and, and it becomes a little surreal and, you know, sometimes seeming like it's not real. Right. But then stuff like this happens. Right. And you know that you learn, you learn the lesson that a 21 point lead isn't safe. Carolina's never done. Dean Smith's never done. So that's what I remember about this game. Cause I saw, I saw none of the signs that would lead to you to think that Carolina's going to come back and win this game. And then I wake up the next morning and all's right with the world in a way that you wouldn't expect. So I'm taught what Dean Smith's all about. I'm taught as a spectator of Dean Smith's basketball teams, what to expect and what's possible. Um, so that's what I remember is that it's just, it, it's what was, what was, what Carolina basketball was all about. This was one of those four or five games that kind of taught me a lesson. I love that this game taught 10 year old Matt, the idea of faith in Dean Smith's coaching. It, it's, it's neat that this was one of the, uh, seminal moments of not seminal seminal moments of of Dean Smith's coaching and, and like you said that it, it showed you that okay I can still come back or I can get my team to come back from you know 21 down in less than nine minutes of game action against the top 25 team that's loaded with NBA talent and still win you're Matt you're kind of the reverse of an earlier show we did about um, I think it was the NC State game in in 79 where the Tar Heels were up 21 at the half. Thad Williamson was, uh, was on with me for that one, and he said that he went to bed at halftime with Carolina just walking the dog all over the Wolfpack and then woke up the next morning and was just discombobulated to find out how the game had actually turned out. So I love that you're kind of the opposite end of the spectrum for that. Right. So we've talked about what we thought before the game, you know, before we went back and rewatched it. Now we're going back and rewatching it, what were the biggest things that kind of jumped out at you knowing what you knew, you know, we're going into this with already understanding what the outcome of the game was. We're kind of rewriting or relooking at history. Matt, what were some of the major events of the game in your mind as you're sitting there dissecting and rewatch? Yeah. Well, I think the thing where it all kind of starts is before the game, right? Cause we learn, you know, when the, you know, the tip's about to happen that Phelps and Reese are benched for the, for being two minutes late, which is just such a quaint thing to hear 
27 years later um, that they're that they're benched for Sullivan and Scott Cherry, which I didn't even know was in the realm of possibility that Scott Cherry would be starting a basketball game, even in an emergency situation. But it really sets the tone for the offense for that first um, first few minutes of the or the, the first half, really. Um, and then, you know, four minutes, 30 seconds in, Montrose gets his third foul, and that kind of is that's the domino that falls, right? That's what's going to set the stage for the rest of the game. And, um, you know, you, what you have from there is uh, Florida State has a 1-3 in chaser defense, which is what Dick Vitale calls it. I've never heard this, this term specifically before. And they make a little bit too big of a deal about it. But what it ultimately is is Charlie Ward's chasing around, whether it's Williams uh, or Phelps, the, the, the kind of the, the best player on Carolina's offense um, for the whole half, right? And, what, and then what that does is it leaves all of the other shooters open, wide open. And, you know, under normal circumstances, okay, let's line it up. You know, let's have Donna Williams start, start shooting some threes. But Carolina can't throw it in the ocean. You know, they go uh, – Reese, Lynch, Rodel, and Sullivan go 0 for 12 to start the game. Um, so that's really the stuff that – right out, out of the gate, that's what, that's what gets us to 21 points down. You know, so those, yeah. are, those are the kind of plays that stand out to me out of, out of the gate. Yeah, I think the you mentioned the Montrose foul trouble. That totally just broke Carolina's offense. I mean, they they didn't even set. They weren't setting great screens. Uh, they weren't you know they weren't filling the different parts of the court like Dean used to like them to do on offense. Him being removed from the game that quickly absolutely crippled their offense. Rob, what did you see? You know, as far as major events or or things that you felt like you know the flow of the game early on when you rewatched it. I was struck immediately just by the passing offense. I mean, this was not something, even though Roy Williams is a disciple of Dean Smith in some ways, in terms of playing style, they've diverged quite a bit. And so this was the Carolina passing offense and, and the way you move the ball around with a pass rather than the dribble, which you know, Matt mentioned the word quaint. is very quaint by today's standards. So even when the team wasn't playing well, watching it again, I thought, oh, actually, the offense still looks pretty good. Like they have, they have a you know, a purpose where they're going with the ball. They just weren't making any shots. And you're right, with, with Montrose being discombobulated, they weren't finishing well. And you, you saw them, I, I thought they were generally trying to do the right thing. They got rattled by a very talented team. You know, I mentioned off the top, this was a prior era. Like, the game looks like a prior era, but Florida State plays a, a little bit more modern in the sense that it's more freewheeling, you know, as if guys hadn't been in college for three and four years, which was common at the time, not anymore. So they looked look more modern to me in some ways, which is interesting clash of styles. But my sense watching it live was, oh, they've lost contact. They're going to get blown out. But rewatching it, I was like, you know, they're really not, they're not competitively outclassed. One of those things where it's just not their day. I'm sort of, yeah, maybe it's just hindsight, but I, I feel like watching it, okay, they're not, they're not completely getting obliterated the way I remember. They're just not finishing plays well and then had some external unexpected things go against them too. Well, I mean, what are you going to do if you're not going to make shots? You know, I mean, <laughs> how do you run an offense? Drink Gatorade. Yeah. That's, that, that's a good point, both of you. Uh, Rob, I like the way you, you kind of tee that up in a sense that uh, it wasn't like they were getting annihilated. There was a stretch in the first half, and maybe this is just Vital banging it into my head, but you know, you really felt like Florida State was the aggressor. But after that, like, 10, 12-minute window, the second part of the first half was pretty trash basketball on both sides. I mean, it was a lot of missed shots, a lot of turnovers. Um, 
you know, I, if I saw one pitch ahead that somebody picked off, uh, you know, I probably saw 10 of them, at least in the first half of this game. It was, it was pretty ugly ball. I, I love that both of you guys highlighted that. Um, what did you feel like, Rob, after the first wave of the game? Was there, you know, after that first initial, you always kind of feel it out like a heavyweight fight. Like they're feeling each other out and they're trying to, you know, trying to see which punches are going to break the tension, trying to, to see where the other guy's going to go and where opportunities are going to be. When did you feel like that settled? And what did you notice or, or what was your thought when you felt like, you know, the flow of the game started kind of taking its own feel? I thought, I mean, at the end of the first half was basically a disaster with multiple turnovers. And in Florida State, got a couple of cheap baskets, an open three for Cassell. You know, those were the types of things they – that was the last thing they needed going into the break. Yeah. But then they came out and with renewed sense of purpose, much sharper – I think what you saw was an experienced team playing program basketball. And I'll give you a parallel. I said there were some, you know, there had been a divergence between Dean Smith and Roy Williams, but that game that started that second half reminds me of maybe midway second half of 2007 against USC. And that was another Carolina team that had, that did not have experience, but they were playing program basketball and in a belief in the stuff that we do and we can come back and they were down huge USC and they came back and won that game. And it reminds those two games, I think are, are similar. The, the plots aren't exactly the same, but you can start to see it in the second half. Okay. We believe in what we're doing and we're just going to chip away at it and the score will take care of itself. And so maybe a few minutes into the second half, you could see this renewed resolve. They were playing at home. It was a great crowd. And so it wasn't, again, this is hindsight, but it wasn't as shocking as I remember it being at the time. 73-65, Florida State has cut a 21-point lead. Roto with the spin right now, draws the defense to him, dumps it off. Phelps finally gets on the board, and the heels are back. It was 65-44. Now it is 73-65. Yeah, the ultimate belief and buy-in in what you're doing is really clutch. And I think without being in the huddle, uh, but having read some anecdotal stuff, I think that's probably what Dean would, would bang on them about. Matt, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think to, to hop on what Rob says there, you know, in that – so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give – two kind of frames here. What would I have thought after that first wave, watching it, not knowing the, the outcome? I'd have been like, maybe this team doesn't have it, right? Maybe we were wrong about them, you know, because you're, you're, you're seeing the score, you're seeing a little bit of, you know, none of these shots are going on. Maybe this team's exposed. You're not realizing, okay, well, they're down essentially two starters. You know, Donald Williams doesn't come off the bench until seven or eight minutes into the game. Doesn't score until I think like, you know, six or seven minutes left in the first half. Um, you're not seeing the team that they – even the guys that they'd have, you know, two months later, and you're seeing Brian Reese shoot jump shots. Like I kept thinking to myself, why am I seeing Brian Reese and George Lynch <laughs> shooting so many broken jump shots right now? And to Rob's point, the reason they're shooting those is because that's what the offense demands. That's what the defense is giving them. They're running their offense properly, but these shots are being shot by guys who should, wouldn't normally be shooting them um, and who would probably be shooting a little bit better than they, they normally would um, if that were the case. Um, so I think that I would have been back then, especially as a 10 year old, <laughs> I would have been panicking, um, today, you know, I think we often like to think about these teams as the, we were like to remember teams as the final product. Yeah. Um, we remember them the last way that they played, which was, you know, when I was coming into this game, I was expecting to see the whipping passes that Rob was talking about. Um, I was expecting to, and saw, um, ended up seeing the, um, 
the defense, you know, the great team defense, you know, we saw that too. Right. But yeah. um, you know, this team's learning too, right. They're learning along the way as well. I think, you know, if this was happening in the modern era and we could see Twitter, um, you know, there'd have been teams, you know, fire Dean, you know, or people on Twitter, fire Dean, uh, this team doesn't have it. Um, they're not who we thought they were. Uh, so it's just fun to see teams have that struggle even ones that we view as the quintessential Dean Smith team. Like this is the one that was the embodiment of Dean's philosophy because there's no, you know, over the top NBA star on this team. Um, so this is Dean's soul on the floor and they still had some moments where um, on the surface, it looked like they didn't have it. Yeah. Did either of you guys, and this may just be a flaw in yours truly. Did either of you guys get really annoyed at Vital wondering why they weren't taking the wing jumpers? And I'm like, the defense wants you to take the wing jumper. They want you. They want you to take that. And when you're not hitting it, yeah. You know, why? Why should you all of a sudden just get suckered into what the defense wants you to wants you to do? I mean, am I totally off base on that? I guess I shouldn't be surprised because I think Vital, even in his prime, which he was then, was was an emotional game watcher. So he he always he very frequently commented on the feel of a game, and he's a big momentum person. And I, I don't, I wouldn't describe Dean Smith as a momentum coach. I think he, he was like, no, we're, we're not going to allow them to take the play away from us and, and have them take us away from our identity, which was kind of getting back to what we were saying before about how they were believing in the stuff that they were running. And you know, this is not the first option, even if it's an open one, we're going to force your defense to move in a way that we get the shot that we want. So even though, uh, it wasn't working early. Of course, it started to work. And then, as Matt mentioned, the, the defense in this game by both teams uh, was, was, I thought, much more intense and heels down, uh, you know, no pun intended. But, and again, that's a byproduct of the era with a lot of more experienced players. And they're really crisp rotations, uh, not as grabby and shovey as it is now, but just great yeah. team-coordinated defense. See, look at this defense right now. We watch North Carolina really trying to deny. You see right here, really trying to deny, not to let him get the ball up here, up on top. They're doing a super job now. They bring it into a trapping area. Freeze it right there. You don't want it here. They can allow the trap in that area. That's a dead spot. You don't want to get the ball in that area against the trap. Yeah, I, I tried to, you know, I had a few notes here. Where I was like, God, both teams are playing terrible. And I, I was uh, offensively. And, you know, was trying to say, well, Carolina just doesn't have it offensively tonight. I wasn't giving Florida State enough credit for their defense out of the gate. Their hands are in everything. Um, hands are in the passing lane. They're stripping anything that, that drops below the waist. Uh, I wanted to say they're playing physical, but like you said, Rob, they're not. They're, they're playing strong, but Aggressive. they're not bumping. They're not grabbing. Mm -hmm. um, it's really – and it's a great defensive performance by both teams. It was clean defense. I think that's, that's the type of thing that, you, you, like you guys both said, you really don't see a ton of anymore. I mean, Florida State's denial of the ball uh, and the way they got their hand in passing lanes was incredibly refreshing. And I go, you know, rewatching it, I'm kind of thinking if, if they would have valued the ball right after a turnover a little more, this game isn't close, right? Like, how many times did Florida State get a steal and then immediately throw it away? <laughs> I, felt like it, I felt like it was Groundhog Day, right? Um, Three or four no look intercepted passes by Bobby just, Sarah. Yes, uh, out of the blue. I, I guess because he's playing with a quarterback on the floor, he yeah. feels the need to try to one up him and, and throw in a triple coverage over the middle. Or I don't know. Uh, but as, as good of an athlete as Bobby Sarah was, this was not one of his better passing performances. Um, Matt, I'll come back to you with this one. Uh, controversies from the flow of the or from the from the the body of the game itself. Did anything anything stab you in the throat there? Well, I mean, and I feel like I'm I'm gonna lose the 
the the contest here, who's going to mention wine and cheese first? Um, this was the the follow up to the wine and cheese game, which um, I remember, you know, at the time thinking like every like even like my parents were making a big deal, big deal about this back then. And I was like, it seems kind of dumb. <laughs> Why is everybody making a big deal about this? It seems like kind of an innocuous comment. Like lower ring is quiet. Like we know it is, right? right? This... The crazies are up top. That's what he was saying. Um, I was digging into it a little bit more over this weekend, and um, the NNO did a story a few years ago that that kind of retrospectively was the 25 year anniversary of this comment. And they kind of looked into the the origin of the quote, and it all to so none of the writers except the NNO column writer used that quote. Uh, everybody else mm. just like kind of let it die. Um, the quote's different and has changed over the years, which I thought was fascinating. It's become a little bit more controversial. Like a year later, when the Orlando Sentinel finally printed it, it was like flipped around and like made to sound a little bit more um, controversial. So. You know, I, I, as an adult now, looking back, it definitely seems very silly. And, you know, especially as far as Sam Cassell goes, it doesn't really seem like a big deal. So that right. was the controversy in the backdrop for this. And, and, you know, you watch the game and ESPN loves making a big deal about that. And um, so that's the big, the big controversy for me in this game. And they had beaten Carolina both games in 92 the year before. So whatever Cassell said, he kind of had a right to chirp a little bit, huh? Yeah. Rob, what do you think, man? Any any controversy stand out to you in, in this one or anything in your rewatch that just really made you kind of sit up in your chair? That's the obvious one. I, I think there was always this dynamic between Cassell and Carolina and his belief that he was the best player on the court at all times, which I think served FSU well at times and also hurt them at other times. Uh, this is a little bit askew from the question, but rewatching it, I thought, oh, you know what? Florida State did a great job of preparing Carolina for Michigan. Michigan was a much more disciplined team, mm. but just sort of though I could see that. But but Michigan didn't make the same number of mistakes, but they had that length and athleticism. So in a way, Carolina got Michigan once. They got FSU in conference, and then they went back to Michigan. And so they had a lot of preparation at that point. I, I sort of had this thought in connection with I think it was maybe the 1971 team. This is before my time, but when that that team uh, ran into Florida State also, and they weren't they got blown out in the Final Four, I believe, and it was one of those situations they weren't prepared for a team like that, and so you had this uh, extremely athletic club with a confident player who controversially thought that he, he was a little bit more outspoken about it than most players were at that time, who were deferential to Carolina, especially to Dean Smith, and that gave them some really nice preparation. Uh, just sort of an, an unexpected facet of the game that I wasn't looking for when I watched it. That's a really solid parallel. I, I wouldn't have made that connection. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, timeless highlight, right? Like the, there's a couple there that I think we want to kind of gravitate towards. Uh, Matt, I gave you the first question last time. Rob, I'll let you take the timeless <laughs> highlight first. What's, what do you feel like was your – uh, was your you know ESPN moment there? Well, of course, the steal and the dunk by George Lynch. I mean, I, I think that was the – at my high school the next day, I wasn't quite as young as Matt, but at my high school the next day, that was the one that everyone talked about. It was sort of – that was the signature moment of the game. And it was the crowd. It was like perfect timing. Uh, just the, the crowd was right there. You, just, you could feel that dunk through yeah. the TV, even in our lousy little – non-HD TVs of the era. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was just one of those magical things. And at that point, it felt like they could not lose, even though, like 1974, 
Uh, you know, you hit a bank shot going to overtime. Well, surely they can't lose, and they didn't. And after that dunk, you know, they can't lose, and they didn't. It was just one of those things that just felt like destiny at that point. Lynch to Montrose. Jeff Hook is good. The lead cut to one again. We're under two minutes. Impossible to stop him inside. He's got too good of a touch, and he's too strong around the basket. Sarah trying to bring it up against Roller. He's really very physical. Now he's going into a trap area, and there's the rotation. There's the yes, sir. People forget what a great steel artist George Lynch was. Um, I mean, he totally, he picked six that ball. It was, it was just, he read it perfectly, just jumped out of the gym to get to it, you know, then took it himself. Now, that said, Matt, you're allowed to choose that play if you have something else you want to say about it, or is there another timeless highlight from this game that you want to talk about? Well, I did want to say one quick thing about that. There, if you pause, the, when, when Sir throws the pass and you pause it, Lynch isn't on the screen, right? This is the ha- this is the, the side mm-hmm. angle, right? Yeah. So Sura is about five or sorry, Sura is uh, Sura's not the one Sura is the one receiving the pass um, from Ward. Uh, Sura is about five feet from half court. He, Lynch isn't on the screen. He's in the Atlantic Ocean if you're looking at the North Carolina. <laughs> and oh, just the, off a of nag's head. Yes, we got you. Yeah, the amount of the amount of, of um, you know space he makes up in a second is just amazing. But for me, um, you know. There's the, the five straight threes that Carolina makes there that cuts it, um, you know, that cuts the lead more than a half down from 20 to eight in um, uh, it was a, minute, quick. a minute, 59 seconds. That was another thing that, that I, I, had, I had no idea about is that lead disappears in five straight shots, basically. It's, it's crazy. Um, and I, so I'm going to go with this a little differently. Rodney Dobard is just like, he's that dude, man. He was a <laughs> he dog, had, man. He was a he, dog, yeah. So Rel, men- Rel mentioned a few episodes ago about how we've been playing the same Duke game for 13 years. Florida <laughs> State's had the same, the same team for 25 years where they just have these like six, nine strong as an ox athletic dudes, athletic wing forwards. Yes. All of them every year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dobard has this lefty dunk. Um, so he, uh, he pump fakes Montrose and drives to the lane and, and dunks it with his left hand. It was just amazing. There, so the, the, the thing that I kept – you kept expecting for a long time throughout this game, Carolina's going to make a comeback. Carolina's going to make a comeback sometime. Florida State's going to panic, right? Well, there were four or five plays there where Florida State, like, pulls their fist back and just knocks them right across the mouth. And, and Dobard was responsible for two, two or three of those. They had the, – the swagger of this team – I mean, and Rob's completely right. The Fab Five comparison is a great one. They also remind me a little bit of the, the Miami team um, with Shane Larkin a few years back, just the swagger of that team, the confidence, but also that same confidence that made you think they're probably going to lose in the Sweet 16 after blowing a couple right. point lead. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so for me, I'll, I'll, if I'm going with one play, I'll go with it a little bit contrarian. The, the Dobar dunk is something that I had no idea existed, and it was, it was fun to watch. <laughs> Hey, man, game recognized game. It doesn't matter which jersey he's wearing. I appreciate you calling that out. I, I want to throw this out there, and you know, it isn't really a highlight so much as it was a turning point of the game. And you know, prepping for this, 
I felt it. And then I saw um, actually Adam Lucas, who writes for GoHeels.com, had, had done something about this a few years back online. And it's still available if you want to go find it. But Hendrick Rodel hits what I think it was either the first or second three that Carolina had. They went over life for the first 30 minutes of this game. And Rodel hits one and it cuts the lead to 17 points. Dean Smith calls a timeout. At that point, I think Florida State caves. I absolutely think that, that either – whether it was something that just triggered them, whether they saw, oh, Dean's calling a timeout, they must think they can win this, and it just clicked negatively for them. I don't know what happened, but I've never seen anything like this where, you know, 17 points is now all of a sudden our working margin, and Dean calls a timeout, and it just – it immediately, like, like you were talking about, those, those couple of back-to-back threes, in two minutes, poof, it's gone. And I feel like a lot of fans have lamented the way that UNC loses leads like that, uh, you know, over the years. But going back and rewatching this, man, I think, you know, Dean Smith calling that timeout may have been one of the most Dean Smith things ever. Look how far the defense is packed back in there. They're going to say, take that shot the rest of the game. Yeah, you got it all right. You know, some North Carolina has called a timeout. They stopped the clock with 9.21 to go in the game. It's still 71.54. Because his team then all of a sudden just, okay, we're, we're going to go now. Either of you guys pick up on that? Do you have any feelings about it, or am I totally out of left field? I think you, may, you raise an interesting point about how Carolina fans lament how other teams do that to them in terms <laughs> of the, the quick erasure yeah. of the lead. Uh, because typically they, you know, Carolina was going to steady as she goes. And still, in a, in a normal Carolina team, they like to pound you inside. They're happy to – to allow you to have an advantage on threes if they're playing much higher percentage basketball overall and, and over the course of a long game with more possessions and they get some separation. So for them to be the team punching back, you know, with shots they ordinarily wouldn't rely on and to erase a, re- a lead like that, I mean, I think it mostly has come up with two games, but not only two games. Um, I mean, I think the Auburn game from 2019 – where they just got yeah. shelled on threes so is to see them uh, be the one administering that kind of medicine. And especially in the context of that team, which as mentioned earlier, was the epitome of, of a classical Dean Smith offense uh, just shows you that I think all Carolina fans know this, but you know, having a preferred style of play doesn't mean that it has to be rigid. And so what I loved about the coach Smith teams was that it, they, they were uh, very disciplined and on brand all the time, but there was enough innovation in there and then they could pivot off of it as needed. And this was one of those games. And that's exactly the point where they pivoted. You know, it, they had no choice and they did it. And they did it so successfully and so quickly. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think the another thing that was, that's jumped out to me, Joey, to your point, I had forgotten how calm Dean Smith was all the time. Always you know, they, so stoic. Yeah, I mean, we make, I mean, to the point where it's disinterested sometimes. <laughs> you know, you're coaching, right? I mean, but I mean, we, we like to compare Roy and Dean, and Roy is so much more animated than, <laughs> and you look at uh, the way that Pat Kennedy, his demeanor, that last, last, you know, seven minutes of that, I'm, yeah, exactly. You got it, the perfect joke. I mean, comparing him and Dean, like the, the Dean's team reflected him, Pat's team reflected him. And, and Carolina wins. 
<laughs> I, I'm sorry. I started with the face there, but that was one of the things I put in my notes. I thought we froze for a second there, Jeff. <laughs> when they called that tech, when Lenny Wirtz uh, assigned that, shout out to Lenny Wirtz, God rest his, God rest his soul. Um, when Lenny Wirtz assigned that tech to uh, Pat Kennedy, and I still don't know what Kennedy did, but um, just the, the look on his face was so meme worthy, right? Like if we'd have had social media then, that would have been the meme for like two weeks of ACC basketball straight up. Um, I'd like to come to a point in the show where, you know, we say, who was this guy, right? And, and it can be for either team. You know, you mentioned the Dobar play earlier being a highlight. Totally fair game. Uh, Matt, who was your this guy for this game? So for me, it was, it was actually Montrose. And the reason for that is when there are guys with some, you know, some better stat lines in this one, I mean, he has a good one, you know, 15 and eight in 22 minutes. But for me, you know, I often, you know, will get down uh, rabbit holes and start looking up old stats from a long time ago. And you look at Montrose's per game numbers. And sometimes you're like, why are we still talking about this guy 27 years later? I mean, he's like, no, never more than 15 points, never more than eight rebounds. You remember his impact being so much more than that. But this is a great game to, to kind of understand Montrose because when he goes out with that third foul, Mm-hmm. everything changes how many minutes uh, did he play in this game 22 yeah so i mean that's yeah. that's a heck of a stat like that per 40 yeah. stat line is amazing well, 40 straight yeah yeah but it's really i mean the amount of energy and attention it takes for the defense to keep Montrose from dunking rebounding and dunking everything within four feet it's a lot man so the gravitational pull of eric Montrose, yeah. you know literally and figuratively <laughs> is huge um and you notice what him coming back on the floor what it means to the team. There's a few play, right before things, right before that five three pointer stretch. There are a few plays where Montrose either dunks back, you know, dunks the put back in there, um, or makes the defense really work for a rebound a handful of times in a row. And you notice the confidence that gives the rest of the team. I mean, when 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 Henrik Rodel doesn't have to worry about being the only scorer, and Eric Montrose yeah. has done three dunks in a row. It's a little bit, you know, you're a little bit looser when you're shooting that three-pointer. So you're a little bit more likely to make those three-pointers. Um, so, you know, as Rob said, like, when you when the offense is running normally, um, you know, guys are going to feel more successful or more confident to be successful. So for me, Montrose, this was just a great opportunity to see what he does even when, you know, he's not scoring 25 points or something like that. His, just, his gravitational pull is just so immense. And it was cool to see that and remember what he was um, way back when. Lynch couldn't get it to fall. Montrose with a foul. He would have a big day today if he didn't get in foul trouble. They can't handle him on the interior. 48-32, 7 for Montrose. I smell a run by North Carolina. I really smell a skirt coming. It's got to take a physical toll on the opponent, too, when they're playing so freaking well. Oh, and then, by the way, here comes a 7-foot guy off the bench that we haven't had to defend against. And now we've got a body up against him with 10 minutes left in the game that is now officially in doubt. Rob, who was your this guy? Well, this is an easy one, but I would do George Lynch uh, because throughout my career, it's you, know, you can talk about players, you can scout guys, and people are like, okay, yeah, that's fine. We need a Lynch. <laughs> and I mean, that I can't even recall that, like, recount the number of times that I've heard people asking that, was he like a Lynch? We need a Lynch. Mm. And I think this this game is where that comes from primarily although it was a culmination because uh, Lynch is a freshman against Georgetown this was the 1990 season the team wasn't as good as Georgetown and they lost but he's, he showed that like fire and you know a little bit more spark that the, the program had developed a reputation for becoming stoic mm-hmm. and had some some disappointing tournament flameouts throughout the 1980s most of the 80s 
Fletch comes in with some of the other guys, but that game in particular, I was like, okay, I, I know what this question is and I know where it comes from. And he was great all season, but as Matt mentioned, and you look at Montross and the other guys, there were, you know, Montross was the featured offensive player. Derek Phelps was the best defensive player, but Lynch was the heart and soul of that team. And I think this is the game that if, if you had to pick one, that was his signature. This was it. I'm glad you picked him. We're going to have George Lynch on for the post-game interview later in the show. Hope everybody will stick around for that. Um, all right. I always make a Freudian joke here when I segue to this part of the show. But what did this rewatch make you feel? Let's get in our feelings a little bit. You, know, you can wear your fan hat if you want to. You can wear your journalist hat if you want to. Or you can just you know go full vital and scream at the top of your lungs, whatever you want to. But Rob, where, where, did you, where did you come off in your feelings from this game? Honestly, it made me very wistful. Uh, this, it wasn't just I – mean, we've talked about eras, and this was the Dean Smith era, but this was a different college athletics era. Now, we are entering a new one. Even, even you know, from the past five years, you know, college basketball has changed a ton with all the none and done and then one and done. And, and with the name and lightning stuff coming, which is understandable and long overdue that, you know, all that, it's not a statement about the propriety of any of that stuff, but it's just, it was different mm-hmm. back then watching a college game that even though, I mean, the Fab Five is a perfect example of a team that had a lot of stuff going on, but it was just, it felt different because it was a destination for a lot of players. Like this is the highest, a lot of, most of these guys are going to go. And the sport enjoyed immense popularity on that basis. You had rivalries that developed over the course of multiple years. You had conference opponents. You, you played multiple times, all of them a year. And, and it, all that stuff is gone already. And we haven't even got into this new thing with name and likeness. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun watching it. But I do think it was a richer experience. And watching as closely as I have, I, I think I have not – I didn't realize how much I had missed uh, from that era because it, it has been sort of like chinked away at over time. But when you go back and you watch some of these games, like, oh, wow, you know, this was college basketball at, at its peak popularity. And it was just a tremendous thing to watch. And it's still a lot of fun, but you have to, you have to squint a little bit to get back to where you watch these games the way you could in the past. That thoughtful answer kind of encapsulates why we do this throwback podcast. So I'm going to have you stick around afterwards. We're going to get you to record uh, a, a video and audio rating and review for the show that we're going to use for a commercial from here on out on Inside Carolina. Not really, but thank you for that's a very it's a very thoughtful answer, and you get bonus points for using the SAT word wistful. Matt Morgan, you're up. What was yeah, your I mean, what was what was your feelings moment for this game? Yeah, I mean, I think to you know. Rob is Rob inspired me a little bit with that answer. I loved it, but it kind of it made me it did make me a little sad for how much I've forgotten about what Dean Smith basketball was. To be honest with you, you know, um, those those traps, you know, and the defensive efficiency and the the fundamentals with that seem so foreign and a lot. And I don't mean that judgy. I mean it's basketball players are amazing right now, so I don't mean it as yeah. a value judgment. But it's just different. I mean, and the passing is different. And whereas you see guys drive to the basket now, back then you're seeing these passes, right? So um, you know, like I said, um, this was a lesson game for me. My dad was an NC State fan, so I really wasn't brought up in Carolina basketball from birth, right? Um, you know, I got there, right? But there were, but I wasn't, someone wasn't telling me this when I was three, four, five years old. I had to learn some of this stuff for myself. So, you know, these kind of these, these moments, these games throughout the years that taught me something. 
89 Oklahoma game, right? Where like people say, you know, Carolina's got a chance here. And you're like, oh, that's crazy. But then it happens, right? Mm-hmm. This game's another one, you know, bloody Montrose, NC State in 97, where I was there for that. And I'm, I'm expecting, you know, Carolina to be done with two minutes to go down eight or nine points and then come back and win it. You know, so that was, you know, that was awesome. It's like, you know, I used to say that I would, I talked to my, I talked, or I didn't talk to, I, I heard Dean Smith speak more than I heard my grandfather speak. So having, he was just this kind of voice throughout my childhood to reassure me to know everything was going to be okay. Right. So I think that this is kind of one of those times where it's, just, it's, it's, it's Dean Smith in a bottle right here. It's Dean Smith in a, in an hour long, you know, clip on YouTube, which was great. And it was, it was really cool to see that again. Um, and, uh, you know, another thing, seeing the floor rush, you know, the fans rush the floor <laughs> after the game. Yeah. I mean, who would have expected that? But it seemed so organic, right? It wasn't for show. It wasn't so they'd get on ESPN. Um, right. That was really cool, too. So I, I really liked seeing, you know, a number one caliber team rush the floor against a team that was going to lose 10 games that year. Um, that was pretty cool. Those are two really thoughtful and well, well laid out answers, guys. You're making me look like a genius for being able to get you two guys to come talk about this game. I, th- I think, I think all of the stuff you guys just canned are, are great ways to wrap our discussion. You know, it, it was the, um, the quintessential Dean Smith game. There was a lot of places there where, you know, he just kind of showed you how his style could work. There was a lot of difference in the ball you know, that was being played at the time. I mean, if you look in this game, you know, you saw a lot of eight to 10 foot jumpers. You don't see those anymore. Um, but the guys at that point were still more athletic than they were prior and a little closer to what we see now. So I, I can see the segues there and maybe the differences and, and what common tenants those games still had. But I absolutely love the, the answers that both of you guys gave for that. Anything you guys want to touch on before we put a bow on this baby, at least for the, the first portion of the show? Uh, Matt, I'll go to you first since you're the farthest away. Is there anything that you feel like we've got to mention or we've done a huge disservice to this ballgame? Uh, one thing I, I did want to say real quick, I mean, the, again, this FSU team, I just think it's so – like the number of pro players on there, they have twice, <laughs> twice as many NBA games played than this Carolina team, which is just not something you would expect. So I think that's, I mean, they have two starting NBA point guards on the floor. So when you, we talk about the passing from Florida State too, like that's just another thing to keep in mind. They have two NBA starting point guards in the game for long stretches, which is just really cool. Um, I really enjoyed watching Derek Phelps play. Um, he was a guy who, you know, when you're nine, 10 years old, you're not wowed by defense. Right. You, you miss a little bit with him. You can see that he's athletic and he looks the part, but you didn't really get the defense. So watching him give Charlie Ward absolute fits. I mean, there are plays where he's from a defensive stance to diving, to catching and throwing the ball. It's like matrix stuff. And it's crazy. I mean, the core strength on that guy has to be insane, you know, but he get, forces Ward into 10 turnovers. So rewatching him was fantastic. Um, seeing Donald Williams um, go from a guy that Dick Vitale calls an instant offense guy off the bench in January to the most outstanding player shooting 60% in the final four from three point range was just awesome. Um, So yeah, that, that, and I, one final, Henrik Rodel, I thought was just such a unique player too. He didn't have the best game in the world, but he's a guy that I also don't have huge memories for, but his, I didn't expect him to play so much point guard, Um, his ball handling, his passing instincts. It was really cool. So seeing, so rewatching, relearning about those guys again, was, was fun. Yeah. I I, I liked the, the Rodel piece just because again, the game had not been officially globalized. I mean, we had just, we were one season away from the dream team. So we had seen a little bit of it, but the, we hadn't seen the global influx that we have now in the modern game. Um, and Rodel was very much a, a European ball player, but it was, it was really cool to watch. 
I'm with you on the uh, on the the love for Florida State's point guards, but also the fact that Derek Phelps was in Charlie Ward's shorts all freaking game, and it's it's refreshing to watch because when you see guys like that that have that that defensive dog in them, it's uh it'll get you fired up a little bit. Rob, what's the one thing that we can't wrap the show without talking about? <laughs> well, this is a little bit of an old man complaint. I acknowledge that up front, <laughs> uh, but I love the game presentation. It, you know, the the graphics were not intrusive. You didn't have ads crawling <laughs> down the side of the screen constantly. The court was clean. You know, you didn't have all the stuff around the court like you do now. It was it was just it was beautiful to watch. It was like fans basketball court. The score was simple. There weren't a thousand gimmicky sounds coming through. It was so refreshing. I didn't feel like I was getting assaulted for watching it. So it was, I really enjoyed that. Oh, I mean, seeing 10 guys, like it's, it, you, you don't have that anymore. And we've got, we've got such a better technological presentation as far as, you know, how good cameras are and what they can pick up. And yet we're using less of that on the screen, right? Like the 16 by nine is now, you know, one third of Tom Izzo and who Michigan State is playing on Tuesday night, right? For 20% of the game. Not interested. I agree with you. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell people to get off my line with that same line because I think you're, I think you're onto <laughs> something there is. There's a, there's a little refreshing angle in being able to just see basketball. Boys, this was fun. I, I appreciate you guys joining me and, and kind of looking back on what, while it might not come to mind as one of the best Carolina games, I think it is very much an all-time Carolina game for all of the reasons that you guys may have mentioned and, and kind of built out a great story for. Um, I appreciate you guys joining me. I want to give one more shout-out to uh, Johnny T-Shirt for sponsoring the show. Uh, we're going to try to hit a break here in a second. We'll be back on the other side talking with who Rob's favorite guy and the MVP of this game, Mr. Highlight Man, George Lynch. But I want to say special thanks once again to Matt Morgan coming all the way live and direct from San Jose, California, and Rob Harrington coming from his uh, master abode where he concocts all of these great write-ups on uh, – players that you're getting ready to see in Carolina uniform but guys I appreciate your time appreciate your talent appreciate what you brought to the show today and hope to catch up with you soon thanks Jerry. thank you this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from Progressive it works just the way it sounds you tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, everybody. Appreciate you sticking around after the break and hearing the second part what I like to call the post-game show here on The Throwback. This is episode eight, I believe. And... I have somebody that's getting ready to speak with us that is so clutch to the history of Carolina basketball, but specifically with this game, the 1993 game against Florida State, where Carolina came back from, uh, from 21 down in the second half to win 82 to 77. 
Folks, I have got the team MVP from that team. They won the national championship in 1993. He was a number 12 pick by the Lakers that same season. He was one of five seniors on the team. Uh, he played 12 years in the league for five different squads. But probably most importantly, he was my mom's all-time favorite Tar Heel. So that, that automatically shoots him to the top of my list. But I want to give a big hello and a warm welcome to George Lynch. George, how are you, man? I'm doing great under the current circumstances, but I'm glad to be on here on the show with you. Well, I appreciate you taking time and, and hooking up with us. And for those of you that don't know, you know, George has, has gone to great lengths as far as helping us out with getting the audio squared away so he and I can talk tonight. So I, I am indebted to him for that. But George, let's jump right into this, this game from 1993. I mean, what do you remember the most about the 1993 Florida State game? Uh, you know, I remember more than anything, Florida State giving us a hard time. Uh, when they came into the conference, I think they beat us three times in a row before we got our first win against them. Uh, I remember Sam Cassell talking <laughs> all the trash and, 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 and nothing, nothing negative, but he that was Sam Cassell. He was a trash talker. Even in the NBA, he talked trash when they were losing. So you got to respect <laughs> the man that talks trash all the time, even when you're losing. Absolutely. I, I think it's funny. Sam had a long career, too. Did you guys ever play together? No, we never played together. We played against each other a few times. Uh, but but I, I really enjoyed Sam as I got to learn, got to know him as a person uh, off the court. Uh, never, never played with him, but would have loved, you know, playing with Sam Cassell as a teammate. Yeah, man, he was – he and, and that roster that Florida State brought into Smith Center that day, I mean, they had some dogs, and, and Sam was certainly one of them. He absolutely just tenacious uh, on both ends of the floor. Guy really just kept his, his game amped up all the time. I appreciate you calling attention yeah, to that. Yeah, you know, they, they had um, two, three, you know, at least four pros on that team. I, that I had Absolutely. Long, that had great, you know, NBA careers. So, um you know, and, and you look at our team, you know, myself and Montrose are the only two players that out that team that played uh, any length of time in the NBA, significant time anyway. Absolutely. We, we talked about it earlier on the panel part of the show about just how many, like it was almost double two to one minutes in the league that that Florida State roster had versus this Carolina roster. So your point is a very strong one. Um, I'd like to ask, how did Coach Smith handle – this game as it went on, you know, Florida State builds this gigantic lead and, and that's kind of the, the linchpin or the cornerstone of what everybody wants to talk about with, with regard to the game and the context. But I'm curious to know, as a guy that was, was so pivotal to this team and Carolina's success during this time, how did you remember Coach Smith coaching this game and the scenarios that were happening during the game? You know, he, he didn't coach the game any different. Uh, he tried to deflect – you know, playing at Carolina, there's a lot of pressure that comes with it. Uh, you know, there's big games. Uh, he did his best trying to deflect all the pressure that we put on ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we, we ended up having a great year that year, but, for the, but there was a lot of pressure. You know, Duke had just won two back-to-backs. Yep. Um, you know, and – you know, my senior class, at least, I wanted to win at least one. We had opportunity to go to the Final Four in 1990. 
And, um, you know, with that group of guys, and we, we fell short of winning the national championship that year. But, you know, Coach Smith, he throughout the game and throughout practice, he, he kept everything the same. Uh, his locker room speech was, you know, there's a billion people in China, you know, don't even know we're playing this game tonight. So he did everything in his power to take the pressure uh, off of us as players. That's so flawless. And that's such a kind of a larger than life mindset, you know, to be able to kind of play the, the long game while you're playing, while you're coaching the short game, I guess would be a better way to say that. Um, big moment in that game that we talked about earlier. Eric Montross goes out with three fouls before the five-minute mark in the first half. How did that change your role on that team? Again, you were, you were kind of a glue guy, but you were also, you know, big-time scoring, big-time rebounding, especially a, a per-40 thing. You did a lot of things defensively. I mentioned earlier that very few people remember how many steals that you amassed over your career. But your role within that team, how does that change when Eric Montross goes out five minutes into the game with three fouls? Well, you know, I, you know, by me being the senior leader on that team, I kind of went into the summer that I had to get bigger and stronger uh, if I had to play all five positions on the floor, I, I was willing to do that. So I, I kind of prepared myself, you know, going into the season that, you know, this was my last um, last time around. And I wasn't going to leave anything on the floor. So I, you know, I played every minute as if it was my last, whether Montrose was on the floor or, or me playing with the guys from the blue team. Uh, so my role didn't change. Uh, you know, we just knew as a unit we had to keep the game close or within this striking distance until Montrose came back on the floor. Sure. Uh, that's, that's a great way to put it. If you're, if you're playing at 10 all the time, then you know, it really doesn't matter if you lose uh, a cog in your offense. That's, that's a great philosophy. Where does this game rank, you know, as a guy who, again, played four years at Carolina, had an amazing uh, high school All-American career. Um, where, where does this game rank, along with your 12 years in the league, where does this game rank as far as just things that you remember? Or was it, was it the biggest comeback? Or was it the, the biggest one where you felt like, you know, X, Y, any superlative that George can think of? Where, where does this game rank for you? It, it, it has to be in the top five uh, out of my whole career. You know, I would say winning the state championship my junior year in high school. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I could put a, I could put any number of games uh, that my years at Carolina in that in that category, and then you know my years in Philadelphia also. You can pull two or three games out of that. So it would definitely be top five, uh, probably number one as far as comebacks, mm -hmm. uh, because you know even throughout my coaching career, you know my two years as a head coach, no matter what the league was, uh, me being a part of that comeback, uh, I always felt and always encouraged our teammates, my teams, that you can come back, you know, as long as there's time on the clock. Do you think that playing for Coach Smith and the way he always kind of instilled that in you guys, do you think that's a direct, a direct correlation to playing for him? Or is that just, was that just part of your style? Oh, oh definitely. Uh, you know, when I, you know, being, being, being at Carolina for four years, you know, guys don't do that anymore. So, 
I think having an opportunity to play for Dean Smith, playing for him for four years, I learned a lot as a player. I seen him do things as a coach and just his, his mannerism, how he went about his approach with practice, uh, his preparations. I always felt that I learned from the best. And, mm-hmm. you know, having that opportunity, you know, when I, you know, talk to young men today about back playing the game and just staying positive and, and, and keeping them, you know, in the moment, I think that's, that's what I brought away from, you know, playing under, under Dean Smith for four years. And I'm sure the amount of lessons that you were able to, to glean sitting under that tree is, were absolutely you know, innumerable. Uh, what takeaways would you like to share about this particular comeback in this game and what it meant for you guys in that 93 season? Can you put that into context? Well, you know, there was a lot of instances, you know, we already knew that, you know, we talked amongst ourselves that we wanted to beat <laughs> Florida State. You know, that Sam Cassell made the comment, the wise and wine and cheese crowd, yep. you know. Uh, and, and we knew it as players, you know, our fans, if, it, if they didn't think it was a big game, they really wouldn't get involved and, you know, get too excited until, you know, the game was close. We definitely gave them something to cheer about being down 21. <laughs> it, it, that's, that wasn't what, how we planned it, but, um, you know, and, and for some reason we just mentally, I don't think we, we knew we were a better coach team. Uh, we just put pressure on that stuff and, you know, couldn't put the ball in the basket for the whole first half. <laughs> I, I made the comment uh, with the guys earlier on that there was a point where Henrik Rodel hits a three-pointer and it cuts the lead to 17 with just under 10 minutes to play. Coach Smith calls a timeout. It seemed, again, re-watching it totally from, you know, from a neutral perspective, it seemed as if at that point you guys may have gotten into Florida State's head. Do you think that really happened? Do you think Florida State kind of may have come down off of that off of that high they were on when that or just when Coach Smith calls that timeout? Well, if you if you if you know Coach Smith, uh, and you you had an opportunity to be around him, and you you go back and watch, you know his his games, his memory was unbelievable. Hmm. Uh, you know, at points in the game, he told us, you know, and. And a lot of things, I don't know if he was just telling us to, to take the pressure off of us or if he – well, I really believe he really believed it because he knew he prepared us for anything. Uh, you know, throughout that game, you know, he said, listen, let's make sure we go into the half uh, with the game at 10, 10 or less. And he said, we will call a timeout when we get the game to 10. So – at one point in the game, you know, we made a run. I think we – I'm not for sure what the halftime score was. But he called a timeout, and he told us, all right, now when we get this lead to 10, I'm going to call a timeout, and, uh, and we're going to look at their bench. We got the lead to 10. He calls a timeout. He doesn't say anything to us <laughs> ex- except, except for look at their bench. And we looked at their bench and they were arguing with each other. You know, coach was, you know, looked like he was turning them a new one. Uh, and it kind of just, 
took if there was pressure on us, it kind of like took the pressure off of us, put our mind somewhere else. And uh, as we chipped away with the lead, you know, he would he would say little things just to keep our mind off of it. Like, there's a billion people in China not watching us play today, so let's just go out and have fun. Uh, you know, I'm gonna call timeout. Uh, you know, and he would say, "All right, let's get this lead to five. I'm gonna call another timeout." You know, so he would do things like that that. We wouldn't focus on the score. We would just look, all right, let's just cut this lead to five. And, you know, it was a, it was, it was a game for the, for the ages that we were able to come back and make that run uh, and finish the game with a win against a great Florida State team who gave us problems at least for three years in a row. Florida State, first time they've been a little bit challenged. Williams on Cassell. That possession big. Give it up. Give it up. There it is. It's getting interesting. It's getting exciting. First two points for Phelps. They cut the lead to eight. I absolutely love that story because it shows what uh, a lot of people always kind of thought about coach Smith and his teams playing, you know, playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. I think, and I'm not positive because I don't have the game run sheet in front of me, but I think that may actually be the timeout that you're talking about when you looked over at the bench where Pat Kennedy actually gets called for a technical foul at some point while you guys were making that run. And if that's mm-hmm. actually the same timeout, then it's, <laughs> that, that makes your, you know, your recollection even that much more exponentially amazing, I guess, for lack of a lack of better term to put it. Um, absolutely, just a, a chess master while everybody else is playing checkers. I appreciate you sharing that with, with us. Um, is there anything else that you can think of, you know, like that, that you took away from this specific game? Again, I know you had a four-year career at Carolina, played a lot of minutes, a lot of impactful games, and then, you know, your, your dozen years in the league. Is there anything that you remember specifically from this game that you feel like our listeners ought to know? Man, that's, I have to go back and watch it because there was, <laughs> that was so many instances of doing that game. Uh, but he, he always, he always made sure that it was the preparation before the game that made us a great team and, and gave us the confidence to believe in one another, you know, for him to go to his bench. He, you know, if he felt the starters weren't playing well, he wasn't afraid to take every last one of them out. Uh, you know, Roy, Roy does that to, to this day. Um, you know, just the preparation going into games and, and the way the practices were run, uh, you know, the practice plan was on a, on a sheet of paper. You know, every, every minute, every second was marked and, and, you know, you had a manager with this, with this clock. And, you know, when those three minutes was up at one station, we went to the next. So we, he drilled us to make sure and prepare us to, for every moment in the game. And we, play, we spent a lot of time working on situation. We used to call it situational part of practice. And he would put us, he would put us up 10 or down 10 to the second team. And we had to figure out a way to come back with our traps and, you know, what plays we would run, who we want getting a shot. And he was a master at that. And I think 
you have to watch or, or be a part of his practices to understand the brilliance that Coach Smith uh, will, you know, let us as players be a part of. Because now I look back on it and, I, I, you know, I've had an opportunity, like you said, I played 12 years in the NBA and I played for a lot of coaches. And none of them, with the exception of Larry Brown, uh, came close to being as brilliant man as, as Coach Smith. And we all know why Larry Brown was probably that guy. Uh, you know, it's it, to hear you kind of reaffirm a lot of the things that have been lore amongst you know the Carolina faithful. Uh, to hear you confirm a lot of those is, is really is really cool. Uh, I feel privileged to kind of hear that from you. All right, I got to ask last one about the game. The steal and the dunk that everybody remembers. We talked about it earlier on, on the first part of the show. But that was kind of uh, our group as, as a panel. That was kind of our highlight of the game. Do you remember that play? And do you remember uh, being able to, to tell where, uh, where Florida State was going with the ball? Or was it just one of those instinct things? Because you came from where the camera was, was shooting the, the actual play when it happened. You were off screen to the right. So you were well pat. Like you were probably – if not around the the top of the key on the Florida State end of the floor, you were close to it. And then all of a sudden you just come out of nowhere, make the steal, get the dunk, Smith Center explodes, and the rest is history. Do you remember that play? And, and tell us what you want to tell us about it. I remember that play vividly. Um, you know, and, and, and like I said, I keep going back to practices. Coach Smith allowed me as a senior, and I don't know, he trusted me, uh, and I wasn't a big gambler, but – I was always playing aggressive on the defensive side. And, and it wouldn't have happened or wouldn't have worked if, you know, we had guys like Derek Phelps mm-hmm. who, who could play the passing lanes and we had Montrose protecting the rim. Um, you know, I, I had that trust that if I missed the steal, that Montrose would be back uh, under the rim to protect any layups. And I always knew that, you know, half my steals, you know, through my three years playing with Derek Phelps should mm-hmm. go to him because he applied so much pressure on the ball. A lot of times guys didn't see where they were throwing the ball. They just knew that that was supposed to have been an open spot on the floor. And, uh, you know, Charlie Ward is a great quarterback as he is. He should have saw that play happening. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wish I wish we were on the gridiron and I took that one back to the house. On it, but, uh, I think but, we uh, used that analogy that it was a pick. I mean, we were talking about earlier. I think we used the pick six analogy because it absolutely yeah. was, you know, that's, that's a quarterback throwing off his back foot over the middle and, and you coming across just like a free safety, just, just feasting on it. Just could, as one of those deals where it, as you're watching it back, the ball takes just forever to get to your hands. And then once you got yeah. it, it's over. Yeah, it was. I, I wish I had did something a little special on the dunk. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it was, it, like you said, the, the ball was in the air forever. And <laughs> I think I could see the, um, the Spalding or the Wilson letters spinning <laughs> on it. But, uh, I, I, you know, I read it well. I anticipated it. Um, like I said, uh, you know, Coach Smith allowed me to be aggressive defensively throughout that whole year. He trusted when I went for steals uh, that I would get my hands on most of them. And it just, you know, being aggressive in our gym, it, 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 it worked to our advantage. Absolutely. And, again, I 
think that was that was probably all she wrote for Florida State at that point. Even if even if they had a little bit left in the tank, just the exclamation point and the amount of momentum that that took away from them and put into that Smith Center audience at the time. It, that, that's all she wrote. At, at that point, it's just give up the sticks and let's let's go home. It's it's all over but the singing. Nothing like college basketball, the wacky world of college basketball. Pageantry, excitement, the unknown, the mystery. Long Beach State and Kansas, what a week it has been. Florida State came in here winning five straight games with Charlie Ward at the point. Oh, leave a loser. Look at them celebrating. They got a W celebration city here in Chapel Hill. For Dick Vitale and our entire ESPN crew, this is Mike Patrick. Thanks for watching, everybody. Well, man, we've talked about the game a lot tonight. What else is on your mind as, as we sit here and at 8.30 Eastern time? What else, what, what else can, we, can we talk about that you want to share with, with Tar Heel Nation and our listeners here on InsideCarolina.com? Well, I think, uh, you know, the state of our country, uh, you know, whether, you know, the social injustice, you know, with, with blacks and, and, and police officers. I think we, we as a country need to find in ourselves to not only be aware of how black males are being treated in this country, but, you know, I think we have to, you know, anyone who's in our country that's, you know, feel that they're not getting a fair shot, whether it's Hispanic, black, white, uh, you know, job opportunities, career opportunities, you know, whether we feel that, you know, we're not, we're being bullied in schools. Uh, we have a lot that's going on in our country that, you know, we're supposed to be the wealthiest country in the world. We're supposed to have the greatest military power. We're supposed to have all these great things, but, I think we're letting our citizens of this country down by not giving everyone an opportunity. And it's not just, you know, we're talking about the, you know, George Floyd uh, killing. Uh, but I think it's, it's more than that. You know, we've really got to reach back and see how we can be, our country can better serve the citizens of this great country. Absolutely. I think that the Floyd instance is probably just the most recent and has probably been what lit the powder keg that we're seeing right now. I'll ask you a question, and I hate that the onus is on you as a black man to answer it for me, a white man. But I want to ask, what can I, what can I, what could somebody that looks like me do to help change the rhetoric and change the way things are going so that we can find uh, more equality and, and root out some of this uh, systemic injustice? Well, I think exactly what you did, ask the question. Uh, and then let's work on it together. Because if, you know, we, we, we have a chat line with, with former Carolina players, black mm -hmm. and white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mactar brought up the question. All right. We've been, a, you know, we, we get on this, this chat line and we talk amongst each other. But now no one wants to speak up on what's happening to our country. And 
there was a pause on there for about 20, you know, 20 minutes before mm-hmm. anyone answered. And, you know, everybody has their phone. So sure. I think Stackhouse responded. I was trying to read what Tar's message was. Then I responded and then other guys responded, but it was mostly black guys. And we, so we say, listen, we know there's white guys on this chat. Yeah. You guys need to respond. That's the issue. It ain't, it's not that, you know, you got white people don't see what's happening. It's when we don't speak out. When they don't speak out and say, look, that's not fair. That's an injustice. Yeah. So, and it's, it's not just black. It could be against, it could be against, you know, injustice against whites. It could be injustice against Hispanics. It could be a social or economic injustice against, you know, rich people to poor people, you know, because we all know if, if you don't have the money to go through our justice system, you're going to get, most of the time they're going to give you a public defender and you don't have a chance. And that's, you know, so there's things that we have to change. We're we're a wealthy enough country that we can change it. We just have to find it in our hearts to care enough to make the change. I hate to bring it back to a white male, but by the same token, I think we all know what Dean Smith stood for as far as what he felt was his social responsibility you know, how he helped to integrate North Carolina athletics and to a lesser extent, the ACC as a whole. What do you think Coach Smith would say to, to UNC fans right now? He would have, he would have, he would have asked, he would have definitely spoke out. I think, you know, on, on ESPN, you know, uh, actually the, the coach from North Carolina Central challenged white coaches to speak out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would have spoke out before anyone else spoke out. He wouldn't have been afraid to have the backlash from the state of North Carolina. Uh, I think I saw something on uh, on social media where, you know, they were trying to say the coach from Central, Coach Lavelle Moton, was throwing a shot at Coach K and, you know, maybe Coach Williams or Izzo, some of the top white coaches, Calipari, for not speaking out. But 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 part of the problem is because we wait to the last minute to speak out. You know, people try to be sensitive about the situation. You just don't want to speak out a term if you don't understand the, the plight that, that, that Blacks are going through. So, and it's a tough conversation. Uh, you know, I was coaching at SMU when uh, I forgot which young man got shot, uh, killed. But the, you know, the athletic department, Rick Hart is a Carolina guy. And, you know, he's a white guy. He didn't know how to speak out on it. Mm-hmm. So I think if we, if we start the conversation with young kids at an early age in elementary school, teach more debating in schools. Make sure that kids have the skills to speak with their voice and not with, their, not with sticks and stones and, and guns. We have to teach all our kids to be able to okay, it's okay not to have the same opinion, to think differently. It's okay not to agree. Let's talk it out. And then we'll understand where each other comes from. I think because, you know, we, we, we push it under the rug for 400 years or, you know, 10 years at a time, like they say, the cattle peg, you know, is, is building up and then it explodes. And then you see 
you know, black and white on the streets yeah. uh, protesting. And then you have a few people who wants to ride and loot and all those type of things, which is, but if we teach these people, if we teach each other how to debate and have a fair discussion, an open, honestly discussion, and it's okay for, you know, us to bear the difference. Cause we all come from, depending on how you were raised, what your response are gonna be, what type of background you come from, what part of the country you live in that, you know, whether you, you know, you had everything in your life that you could ask for and, and, and against a kid who's had to struggle. And it's, like I said, there's, there's white people out there struggling, there's brown people out there struggling, there's Hispanics and Latin Americans and black and Asians, everybody has a struggle. We just have to be able to have dialogue at a young age to teach each other it's okay to be different. And, and then at that comp, we won't be afraid to have that conversation. I appreciate your willingness to answer that and speak so freely, especially at a time where, uh, you know, maybe some people don't want to hear what, you know, what others have to say. So I appreciate your willingness to, to come out and, and, and speak. And I hopefully, you know, hopefully that that'll help someone somewhere hearing this uh, to help us get a little bit closer towards, you know, the equality and the, the world that we all want to see and the old world that we all want to live in for not only ourselves, but our kids and our kids, kids. Exactly. George, I appreciate it, man. Um, uh, I'm thankful that you were willing to come on and talk to us about this game and talk to us about what's going on in the world and, and just sharing a little bit about what's happening in the life of, of George Lynch. I, I'm thankful to, to be able to reconnect with you, and I love that you were able to come back and give us so many little nuggets, not only about this game, but about your time with Coach Smith and your time at Carolina, and hopefully we'll be able to do this again down the road. Yes, definitely. Anytime. Just, you know, you got my number. Just hit me with a text. I'll come on your show. All right. George Lynch, I appreciate it. Folks, that'll do it for us on this episode of the throwback. You know, again, the 1993 game against Florida State, an 82-77 to Tar Heel win, coming back from 21 points down. Uh, I'm Joey Powell for the throwback for InsideCarolina.com. Special shout-out to Johnny T-Shirt. Visit them at JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Thank them for sponsoring us. I want to give a big shout-out to John Siegley, Johnny Siegs, who's producing every episode of the show and does amazing work. He's the one that puts in the audio, and I'm sure he's going to drop in the audio of, of George getting that steal and dunk uh, that, that just blew the, the roof off the Smith Center. But for George Lynch, for Matt Morgan, for Rob Harrington, I'm Joey Powell for InsideCarolina.com and the throwback. We'll catch you next time. One love. Thanks, George. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner I. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bet. Do average 29 and 11. God, shit. What'd it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Four, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing.